I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Listen, we have shared a lot of history with listeners like yourself on this podcast, but there is so much more that deserves our attention. So if you would be so kind, help us keep it going by going online to rate, review, and subscribe to Dreams of Black Wall Street on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. we're continuing our exploration of the unsung women leaders of Black Durham and North Carolina in the late 19th and early 20th century. In the last episode, we paid homage to a scholar who focused much of her work on this very subject, the late Dr. Leslie Brown. We also heard from Dr. Glinda Elizabeth Gilmore, Yale University Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor Emerita, who wrote a pioneering book on this subject called Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920. As previously mentioned, Gilmore's book refocuses attention to the central role of Black women as political figures in the Jim Crow era by exploring the instrumental and interconnected relationship of gender, class, and race in North Carolina politics from the period immediately prior to the disfranchisement of Black men in 1900 to the period when women gained the vote in 1920. Some of the women she focuses on in her book include voting rights and women's suffrage activist, educator, and founder of the Alice Freeman Palmer Memorial Institute, a fully accredited, nationally recognized all-Black prep school at the time of its existence, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, activist Annie Blackwell, educator Victoria Richardson of Livingston College, Marie Clinton, founder of the Buds of Promise, an educational service club for children, within the Women's Home and Foreign Missionary Society in the AME Zion Church, Rose Agri of the Women's Home and Foreign Missionary Society in the AME Zion Church, Jean's teacher, Clara Mann. Jean's teachers were supported by the Jean's Fund, which was started to improve basic education for African Americans in rural America at the time. Educator, North Carolina Mutual Agent, Funeral Home Pioneer, Kelsey Mutual Burial Association Founder, and Notary Public, Lula Spaulding, formerly Lula Kelsey. Mary Jackson McCrory, an educator who helped found a Black YWCA and later became the first Black woman to seek public office in North Carolina. Home Demonstration Agent and Supervisor of the Jeans Teachers, Annie Wealthy Holland. St. Augustine's College graduate and educator, Anna Julia Hayward Cooper, and Livingston College professor, temperance organizer, and WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance Union, number two president, and YWCTU, Young Women's Christian Temperance Union president, Annie Kimball. The work of promoting African-American advancement, voting rights, education, economic prosperity, stable employment and fair wages, etc., that so-called race women engaged in represented the path many Black leaders believed would one day ensure Blacks' full citizenship. After disfranchisement in 1900, Black women shifted these strategies and methods in order to adapt to the new political structure. 
Here's Gilmore again to further explain how they did this. So as African-American men lost their right to vote, African-American women's position in the political sphere completely changed because they could no longer advocate for women's suffrage in an open way because that would endanger black men, their fathers, sons, and brothers. So there's a big divide in the book around 1902 when black women turn to thinking about what work they can do without the vote and how they can try to prepare people for the future when they will be able to vote again. That part takes up probably two-thirds of the book. At first, I thought that might not be nearly as interesting, but then I learned that even whether garbage was picked up was political if you weren't seen as a client of the state, if white people thought you had no right to be there. So that led me on to all these other black women activists who worked for politics in a certain way, many of whom became suffragists and ultimately tried to vote in 1920. Some of them succeeded. That part you mentioned about not being seen by people, by historians is so true. I think Black women are, you know, unseen, unheard, unprotected. Every day was a tremendous struggle. It is hard to imagine it, even if you know what you think you should imagine, like we do. It's hard to imagine how tough it was and how dangerous it was. And so if you take that as the starting point, the idea of civic leaders and political Black women changes. They're educators. They're doing community cleanup campaigns, and then they're the same women who organize to go to the polls when women's suffrage passes. But they had to go under the radar. And in your book, you note that This didn't stop them from being active. Quote, in fact, it meant that their political activity increased. So obviously, Sarah Dudley Petty and Charles Petty were not able to see that America of racial inclusion that they worked for. But there were a number of Black women, as you just mentioned, who did assume roles of leadership in their community that allowed them to procure resources for their community that would have otherwise been done politically, but they were doing it in other ways. So can you just kind of take us through some of those women? I know there is a lot in your book, but just some of the more prominent women and maybe even women that history has also forgotten about. Absolutely. I'll start with people who I have either spoke with their daughters or knew. And one of those people is Charlotte Hawkins Brown. My grandfather was her doctor and I had sort of forgotten that I had met her on a couple of occasions. Most white doctors didn't serve black patients. He ran a clinic that, albeit was segregated, he saw black patients. Charlotte Hawkins Brown refused to be segregated, so she drove up, her chauffeur drove her up, and they called when she was coming, and 
the doctor came out and got her and brought her in straight to the office. So she had all sorts of ways to get around the strictures of Jim Crow, but they didn't always work. She took the idea of the best women and the best men, the middle-class respectability to greater heights than most people did, most black women leaders did, because she ran a school for women at Sedalia, North Carolina. She lived in a small enough place and had enough control that she could be a statewide figure. And she cultivated this sort of air of competence and respectability. Also, she had a Boston accent, which completely threw all those white North Carolinians. (laughs) And they thought maybe she was from England or something. She was there for all the openings. She opened the school for Black girls who got in trouble, either got pregnant or got in trouble in their communities. There was no such school before that. And while that doesn't sound as if it's celebrating young womanhood, they used to put them in the chain gangs before Charlotte Hawkins Brown opened through the state, a home for girls who had nowhere to go, basically, who had gotten into trouble. She supported the YWCA. She was at the founding meeting. She supported the woman's suffrage and planned a stealth campaign on top of all that veneer that she used of being just detached from politics. She's the one who organized Black women to vote in North Carolina. And it worked, basically. They did show up and they did register and vote. Not in huge numbers, but they did. I have this quote on my phone, which is from your book, actually, and I keep it as a screensaver recently. And it's, quote, why did Brown repeatedly overdraw white understanding and support and minimize the restrictions that her color placed upon her? Throughout her life, she operated by a simple rule. It's better to overestimate possibility than to underestimate it. And when I read that, I was like, wow. (laughs) I never met this woman. I never heard of her before I read your book. But the way you describe her, a lot of people would say, well, she lied. (laughs) But honestly, her methods were so methodical and she was very intentional, but she remained optimistic at a time where there probably wasn't a lot to be optimistic about. So now I tell my husband, always overestimate. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And you know, it is hard to know what she did when she was alone at night and how optimistic she felt. But one thing that she was a master of because of that optimism or at least appearance of optimism was she played white people off of one another. Well, these fine Northern people have donated to my school. These fine Northern people are starting a chapter of the YWCA in a way to make white Southern people step up. She also really did cultivate a couple of white women in a nearby town in Greensboro, one of whom was the Lulu McKeever, the wife of the president of the UNC Green, what is now UNC Greensboro. So she had some very strong support that she was able to use at times when her white male donors had disowned her. She did get 
a lot of death threats and in a lot of trouble because someone forged a letter in her name at the women's suffrage campaign, pretending to be her saying, we're going to go out and vote whether the white people want us to or not. And the irony is, and they published it, the irony is she was planning a campaign, but it wasn't like that. It was under the cover. So, yeah, she's a great role model. I like Clara Mann. And I talked to her daughter. She was a teacher in Newburn, North Carolina. She's a little bit younger than, a lot younger than Sarah Dudley Petty, younger than Charlotte Hawkins Brown. And she went to vote. They asked her to read the state constitution, and she did. This was when women had won suffrage. This was 1920. And then they asked her to recite it from memory, and she had memorized the first three or four pages, so she did. And the registrar finally exploded and said, stop, if you were colored, quotes, and president of Yale, you wouldn't be voting in Newburn, and kicked her out. She kept trying. Lula Kelsey is also a wonderful person. She was a funeral home operator, went and got her funeral license in 1912. Her husband was a barber. So a barber, before you had funeral home directors and embalmers, barbers would have done that. So he kept on being a barber. She became a under funeral home. And her son was fabulous. His respect for his mother knows no bounds and is hilarious. Nothing stopped her. And she was a force of nature. She founded a civic women's club. She organized a women's suffrage campaign, traveled to other cities for that. Basically became the African-American person to whom the white government of the small town she lived in, Salisbury, turned. And nothing happened without her approval. That's the club where there were people like Kelsey who owned her own funeral home and people who were domestics and people who were college professors working together. So she was quite the mover and shaker. Who else is there? Oh, Rose Agri, who marries an African man. And I interviewed her daughter. He died young. She was a genes teacher, G-E-A-N-E-S. And genes teachers taught what we would probably call home economics, but it was so much more. It was how to improve daily life and how to manage when you don't have many resources to manage. And this is a period of scientific discovery, the progressive era. So there's lots of new methods for doing things, canning vegetables, preserving things, keeping yourself healthy, basically healthy nutrition. And the genes teachers did all of that. They went out, traveled all week long, and taught their students really how to modernize their homes on very little. Is that political? It is political because it's all tied to getting state resources to be able to do that, to improving lives of people, to teaching literacy so that they can pass the stupid literacy test, which they didn't stand much chance of, and to become leaders in the community who can broker services for their Black community. Do you think the activism that these race women and men were able to do during the progressive era sort of 
prepared them for the work they would need to undertake to continue to move their communities forward after African-Americans lost the vote in North Carolina in 1900? Yes, absolutely. You know, there's a little bit of, well, we're on our own now. But at the same time, cities and towns are growing very quickly in the first two and a half decades of the century. So if they want to be included, like if they want a road paved in the Black neighborhood, they have to become political again. So I don't think they set out in some Habermasian way to say, oh, how can we accrue political power? We'll go into the civic and social sphere and do these things. What they did was they didn't shut up about what the Black community needed. And they went to meetings. And pretty soon, white leaders found it easier to do some things than to be faced with the kind of poverty and helplessness and anger that they might find in the Black community. You know, it's the first years of understanding communicable diseases. And so people are shocked to find out that flies can go to garbage dumps and fly into your window and make you sick, you know? So the white people suddenly see a self-interest in helping the black women clean up the garbage dump. So that's a complicated kind of thing. But I think that it unfolded in a way that black women understood that they had work to do. It's like having settlement houses without the houses, settlement houses for immigrants without the houses. Some people did have community centers, but basically... They worked in the community in the same ways that Settlement House people did at Whole House in Chicago or something like that. I often feel when it comes to movements such as the civil rights movement or the women's suffrage movement, there isn't much discussion about the role that African-American women played. And I think you did a really good job of bringing a lot of that to light. In your book, you have this quote and you write, Quote, in one generation, African-Americans moved from field hands to teachers, from carpenters to construction bosses. Freed people equipped themselves to compete with whites in business, the professions, and politics. Often, education buttressed by religious beliefs made the difference. Then you go on to say, quote, African-American women helped make those accomplishments revolutionary. Women were integral components of economic gain, generational change, and ultimately civic participation. So what about what Black women did helped make those accomplishments revolutionary? I think, first of all, that because men had been the targets of a dangerous racist voting rights, racial massacre campaign, women realized that if they went into public life, they weren't taking their husbands, sons, or fathers' places. They were emissaries from their black family members and the black men in the communities. A lot of the rhetoric around the disfranchisement campaign and around these racial pogroms was that black success, the success of some African-Americans had led black men 
most of whom, the white people said, had a criminal nature, to think that they had the same equality as whites and that they could rape white women. So this is a very bizarre thing to us, and it's hard to process it because it's so stupid. It's not that black men were raping white women from 1898 to 1902 when this was the big story, because I checked all crime statistics and they didn't go up at all. It's that white politicians wanted a campaign that would embarrass poor white men if they voted against white candidates. So there couldn't be any class juncture. A white man who voted as a populist or voted for a black alderman, which there were many, was traitor to the race. So they did it through saying that women were endangered. So all of a sudden, all that's happened. African-American men are terribly endangered. And black women get the courage to find ways to do politics, to get political voices and services, in part because they're not men. No one is going to accuse them of that. And that's another part of the sort of piety and the sort of best woman thing above reproach. So it's as if, and they probably were, they were reading the latest sociological literature from University of Chicago or following, you know, all of the progressive era science that is making its way to the masses for the first time is revolutionary. And that's what the genes teachers were doing. You know, germ theory, wow, they're going to teach that. They're going to change lives. So there's a huge campaign for sanitary outdoor outhouses. And that sounds not revolutionary or not political, but it absolutely was because people were dying and Sanitary outhouses had to be built a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. So part of what the genes teachers did was that kind of thing. I think a good example is the Rosenwald schools. Black communities, particularly led by women, built their own schoolhouses. The Julius Rosenwald Foundation in Chicago gave a grant to a community. The state contributed some money. It's public education. They're supposed to contribute. They're supposed to pay for this, but they pay the least. And the black community then staffs a school and builds the building, probably donating more than the other two functions. So there's a huge revolution in literacy. The numbers of literate African-Americans explode from Reconstruction to 1910. And at one point in the state, Toward World War One, more black men were literate who were entering the armed services from North Carolina than white men. So it worked. So it's revolutionary in that it's new, it's risky, and it fundamentally changes the way people live. And it sort of helps disprove these notions of barbarity and incompetence as well. Which is what they're always fighting. Sometimes they wrote, there's a hilarious poem that a bunch of black club women wrote before the 
Wilmington Racial Massacre because they were portraying them as barbarians, but people were more careful after that. The whole concept of the best people, the best men, the best women, some people realize that has to be handled carefully after disfranchisement because they don't want to say they're the only people who are worthy of voting or etc. They don't want to laugh at white people calling them barbarous. They want to prove that they're not. Dr. Gilmore mentioned this concept of best man and best woman. We've learned that one of the ways many African Americans attempted to integrate into American society as free people after the Civil War was through the adoption of the same Victorian moral code that white communities had been operating under. This was an incredibly hierarchical society, and Blacks believed this was one of the ways in which they could debunk myths and stereotypes that labeled African Americans as ignorant, indolent, brutish, so on and so forth. However, adopting these rules of propriety greatly influenced how African Americans identified themselves in their own communities, where identity usually fell along lines of class. For example, Upwardly mobile or middle-class Blacks often assumed the role of best man and best woman in their communities among their race. In her book, Gilmore writes, quote, The best man was not real, but a theoretical device that worked to limit democracy by invoking the language of merit. Although African Americans most often reasoned from a political ideology of natural rights, they seized upon the best man figure because it offered their only path to power. End quote. Still, this type of categorization among Blacks complicated class stratification in Black communities. For example, Gilmore writes, quote, Black women reformers tried to impose upon uneducated women and men sobriety, thrift, purity, and a love for learning. If a woman embraced those values, they embraced her regardless of the trappings of her life or her origins. End quote. Most Blacks in North Carolina and throughout the country were not middle class or upwardly mobile and therefore could not and did not assume the identity of the best man or best woman among their race. Most working class and poor Blacks engaged in work that precluded them from doing so as they were focused on survival first and foremost. Additionally, many Black women could not focus solely on tending to their household or voluntary community work as most best women did. They were active contributors to their household income and often engaged in work that was outside of the home at a time when doing so was counter to the lifestyle of those who were more privileged than they. Many Black women often migrated in search of work, which caused them to live apart from their families for long periods of time. This forced African-American women to venture outside of the supervision of their family, particularly male family members, and what little protection those male family members could offer in the Jim Crow South or elsewhere. This, of course, presented a number of dangers in a society where African-American women had little agency over their bodies. 
Other Black women performed work that was considered beneath those who were more privileged, often the harshest and lowest paying, keeping in mind that there were only a limited number of jobs even respectable women could perform at this time, including entrepreneurial endeavors, teaching, and administrative work. And if all that wasn't enough pressure on the shoulders of Black women to cause them to walk with a permanent hunched back, during this time period, it was often the case that the moral standing of a particular Black community was based on the perceived moral standing of women in those communities. This presented a complicated set of paradoxical challenges for Black women and forced many to feel compelled to live up to a set of period-specific proprieties that were simply impossible for most Black women to assume. Consider three important components of a functioning society, morality, employment, and education. Well, for one, Black women were expected to be morally righteous and to take the lead in raising morally upstanding children's citizens. Most did so with few resources in a blatantly racist society structured around policies meant to block African-American access to the body politic at best, and in many cases, to stifle Black advancement in all forms, by any means necessary, at worst. If a Black child raised by a Black mother made one misstep, particularly one that somehow offended a white person or portrayed the African-American race in a manner that confirmed whites' low expectations of Blacks, that child's mother would often be to blame. Black women were also largely relegated to gender-specific societal roles that often meant a more subservient station in life relative to their male counterparts. Though the type of work that was available to most Black women challenged those very gender-specific social norms in that they required women to seek work outside of their household or even of their community in different towns, cities, or states, a dangerous scenario for many women at this time. This was contrary to the lifestyle of middle and upper middle class Black women who often had the luxury of staying close to home and took the lead in volunteer and philanthropic efforts, while men assumed more powerful, influential, or simply traditional roles in their communities. Finally, the education of many Black communities often heavily relied on women teachers who were expected to not only provide African-American pupils with a basic education, but also instruct students and their families on public health best practices, proper living conditions, and overall self-improvement, essentially whatever was most needed in the community. Though most did so on shoestring budgets, inadequate resources, and very little pay. Gilmore writes, quote, In this perverse way, Black women now shouldered the blame for disfranchisement, which whites argued had been necessary because of the barbarity Black mothers fostered by not teaching their sons right from wrong, end quote. Gilmore helps us unpack all of this a bit more. And you mentioned this in the beginning, the way class structures in Black communities in some ways mirrored those in white communities and in some ways were very different. And one of those ways is that Black people, because of segregation, 
they all lived in the same community. They may have been separated by income in terms of the street or neighborhood or the housing they had. But actually, they could not, you know, live in white neighborhoods. They had no choice but to live in black neighborhoods. And you write in your book, quote, their concepts of woman's place were far from monolithic, but were all marked by the experience of exclusion and the challenge of meeting adversity. So I wanted to know how the hardships and limitations that you've been talking about today, how black women in this period following reconstruction into the 20th century forced poorer Black women, maybe working class, lower class Black women, for lack of a better term, to have that dignity and respect, to strike back against their detractors, and also to find a place for themselves in these clubs and movements and organizations where they could also be leaders in their community, even if they weren't considered the poster woman for what is considered respectful or dignified? I think that's a great question. And it sort of translated into, well, what about working class women? First of all, I thought it was pretty miraculous to find the women I did find, to find the minutes of the quote, colored ladies club in the back of a bookcase at Livingstone College, you know, untouched for 80 years. So there were far fewer sources on working class women. There's silences there in my archive. And Tara Hunter's done a really good job in Atlanta on capturing the lives of working class women, laundresses, and their social life. And But a laundress in a small town isn't working class. She's the laundress. It's difficult to explain when we think about class and occupation, etc. So I had no way of knowing except from some minutes and some ideas of who was poor and who was better off and who was working class. And, you know, I did know that some people were domestic workers who had leadership positions. But, of course, there were Black working class women who resisted temperance, maybe. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was an enormous force in organizing Black women. Mary Lynch was a statewide leader. And I just finished a book about Ramir Bearden and his grandmother was Mary Lynch's assistant vice president at the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So they took one position. There were plenty of people, black and white, who thought that temperance was a really bad idea and who thought that prohibition ultimately was a really bad idea. But black women organized a very effective temperance association. Nonetheless, it would be very hard to know how much they leaned on the black women in their communities who weren't getting with the program. You know, most African-American poor women were mothers, sisters, and they wanted the best for their children. And so in a smaller community, there's a huge interaction between the schools and the family. And these women were involved in the schools and these working class women's children going to the schools. So 
I'm not sure there's a yawning gap, but I do understand that this is the strategy they think is going to work. And it requires this person not to be out drunk on the street or even dancing, maybe. Maybe dancing is too much. Who knows? I do know that in larger cities, of course, the tiers of class in Washington, D.C., and New York City, and Harlem get pretty entrenched by the late 1920s, early 1930s. I think that happens less so in the South, where everyone is terribly strict and segregated, and where there's less variety among people. You know, if only the teachers meet and there are only three teachers, well, that's not going to get any Right. Yeah. And probably religion seems to be not only a way of conforming to these rules of propriety, but also it's an inroad into the body politic of North Carolina being taken seriously as a legitimate citizen. Absolutely. We talked about this a little bit earlier because you did mention how, you know, the best man and the best woman, they weren't just acting on behalf of the privileged few. They were doing the things they did because they thought it was actually going to benefit the entire race. And no matter what class you were in, they just believed these are the ways we need to get there. (laughs) So I wonder, finally, you know, you talk about a lot of the moral standing in Black communities. And I find it interesting in reading your book, it really seemed as if the legitimacy or the respect that a particular Black community had, much of it hinged on the standing, the moral standing of the women in those communities. So you write, quote, in 1900, William Hannibal Thomas, an African-American, published a book that described unbridled immorality among Black women. And then you say, even though some white educators of African-Americans condemned Thomas's premise, they attached caveats. So there was a sense that, well, we are not all savages, but yes, some of us are a little looser with our, you know, religion than others. It just seemed unfair. And then you go on to write, a St. Augustine's professor called Thomas's charge of unchecked morality an exaggeration, but acknowledged that there was a grain of truth in it. In this perverse way, Black women now shouldered the blame for disfranchisement, which whites argued had been necessary because of the barbarity Black mothers fostered by not teaching their sons right from wrong, end quote. So Black women have to be almost silent leaders in their communities in order to not endanger the males in their communities in order to not endanger themselves and in order to not draw the ire of whites, but also when things don't go right, then they're also to blame. (laughs) Can you elaborate on that? It's pretty stark, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. I mean, the only thing that I can add to the horrible truth that they got blamed either way, all the way, they're either too politically active or they raise their sons to be rapists or white people constantly reinforce this message. Constantly. In part, it is a carryover from slave masters raping black women, their slaves, And I don't mean that to say in some sort of 
diffuse, historical way. I mean, there were these people who were very light-skinned, who were African-American people who lived with their children, and the whites among them wouldn't recognize them as their half-brothers and sisters or cousins or any of that. And that, you know, it seems as if the Civil War could have been a long time before this, but these people in their 40s who had known all along that they were related. So who are you going to blame as you're building the myth of the Confederacy, which they are doing in the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, as the noble Confederate people, you have got to say that they weren't raping their slaves. And so how else do you explain this? And that's what Tom Dixon did. I just reread a book he wrote called Sins of the Father, which is an excruciating and gruesome read on how white men couldn't help it because black women were so bestial at the same time that they were as politically manipulative of people as, you know, Disraeli or someone. In other words, he imbues them with both great debased morals and cunning in kind of an animal way. He ultimately forgives his father who gave him this, and he forgives himself. The thing is that they couldn't face how we got the lighter-skinned people among us in the South. And by not doing that, the explanation has to be the immorality of Black women. At the same time, it's really convenient for the continued sexual and domestic labor exploitation of Black women. You know, Strom Thurmond, when he was a teenage boy, had sex with the family servant, Senator Strom Thurmond. And she had his daughter, and he would go and visit her at Orangeburg State University. People knew these things. They knew that. I always knew that there was a rumor that he had a black job. So basically, since white men take none of the blame for any of that, it has to be black women. There's also the domestic labor problem. White People depended on Black domestic help in their homes. And they had to convince themselves that Black women weren't really good for anything else. That this was the place where they belonged. This was their trough in life. So that's another reason. But mostly, white people just wanted to keep power. And they don't want to have to answer to black women, they don't want black men to vote. They don't want black women to have a say about anything, anything. You could do that from an economic approach. Of course, the debasement of black women's labor creates such a low floor for wages that they can keep poor white people poor by just starting skilled jobs a little bit above them as basic jobs at a low rate. The whole economy is built on exploitation, personal, economic, political. It's really incredibly, exquisitely hierarchical with Black women at the bottom. I have to imagine also 
with anybody or similar to anybody who experiences infidelity in a marriage for white women uh, from slavery onward, it has to be infuriating if your husband is, you know, not only cheating on you, but doing so with slaves who are supposed to be less than human. And also the slaves are bearing his children. And then you have to watch them, you know, grow up and you know where they came from. So to justify continuing in that sort of <laughs> sort of relationship, it must be the woman's fault. Of course. And we're also living in a patriarchal society here. It's not like women are standing up in great numbers and <laughs> calling men out. And how many enslaved women are going to... Uh rape their masters not many you know right (laughs) right um yeah and i think the stories that mothers pass to daughters you know all of that goes on and on mary chestnut said that most plantation mistresses were blind Mm. because Mm. they just wouldn't see you know there's just every plantation episode, we'll explore the life of a Black woman who grew up in Durham before she went on to become one of the most accomplished Black legal scholars and civil rights activists of the 20th century. Unfortunately, she is also one of the least celebrated leaders of her era as much of her life and even part of her legacy until recent years has existed under the radar. We'll also explore why this is. And if you've got some time, check out the Why Though podcast. Host Benjamin Jacobs takes listeners on a personal journey through his record collection, begging the question, is there anything more terrifying than Ben's taste in music? Ben is also the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which focuses on the history of the Thirty Years' War, a 17th century religious conflict fought primarily in Central Europe. (music) 